He's got a beautiful backswing. That's, oh, he got all of that one. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What is good, everybody? Welcome into the 73rd Hole Radio Show right here on the Sports Animal. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole with you until noon today. And that's when the leaders will be teeing off. They're going off a little earlier at the RBC Heritage to avoid some weather this afternoon. So definitely stay tuned to that. Let me bring in my co-host, Taylor Williams. T-Dub, normally the week after Augusta is a little bit of a hangover. But give me your overall thoughts on this week. This is a heck of a leaderboard, isn't it? Yeah, thank God that it's an elevated event, Sam, because uh, normally Masters Week is a hangover at all, but let alone when you actually get to go there and experience it, it's even more so. But whenever you have this, this stacked and loaded of a leaderboard after this, it's going to make this Sunday afternoon very interesting. I mean, Matty Fitz, Patrick Cantlay, Jordan Spieth, Scotty Scheffler up there, and even Jimmy Walker rising from the grave to get up there. Our local guy Taylor Moore's up there in fourth place. So, I mean, this leaderboard is going to be absolutely jam-packed this afternoon, Sam. There's no doubt about that. Obviously, like you just said, Matty Fitz, Mr. Skill is in the lead at minus 14. Patrick Cantlay, solo second at minus 13. And then you have Jordan Spieth, my pick for the weekend, solo third at uh, uh, 12 under T-Dub. Um, what have you seen from those three guys throughout the week? And, and which guy might uh, you know you be favoring headed into this Sunday uh, obviously, Patrick Cantlay had the ace earlier this week and, and then tweeted out playing faster. That was that was quite the comeback uh, from Patrick Cantlay. But Matty Fitz on the week, T, uh, T-Dub, is just getting it done tee to green, uh, you know, gaining 2.78 on the field. So is Patrick Cantlay gaining 2.76 tee to green on the field. Those really three guys. Matty Fitz, Patrick Cantlay, and Jordan Spieth, they're striking the ball better than anybody in the field. But like I said earlier this week on the podcast, Harbortown at the RBC Heritage, it's, the winner is going to be a great iron player, or at least the guy that's hitting his irons great that week. Uh, and that's kind of the common denominator that we've seen. And then also, T-Dub, talk a little bit about the weather. We had some uh, wet weather in South Carolina, and the deal is, is, the, when the course gets wet and these guys get to play a soft golf course, and especially on a course that's not very long, you can't hide the pins from these guys, can you? No, you really can. And with the course being softer, uh, something about this course is so tricky is that you can be in the fairway on a lot of holes and not even have a clear shot at the green, especially if they have a tuck flag somewhere. So, yeah, being able to be more precise because you can just kind of fly your ball where you want to as opposed to having it run out a lot. And you know what's funny is that this is a Pete Dye golf course, but with the exception of a few green complexes, it really doesn't stand out like most other Pete Dye courses. I mean, you look at this and you look like an Oak Tree National, and there's really not a whole lot of similarities with the exception of, like I mentioned, of a few uh, greens per se. But, uh, but yeah, looking at the guys that are up there, like Matty Fitz just played absolutely exceptional yesterday. Shot a birdie free, or I'm sorry, a bogey free, eight under uh, 63. Uh, hold out on number three for Eagle, uh, make a two there. So he's three under through three, and this really just coasted in from there. Shot six under front, two under on the back for that 63. So that was really solid, really vaulting him up 
the leaderboard. You mentioned Patrick Cantlay, Sam, and I think the only way that you can really get around playing that slow as he does is if you take less shots than every other single person in the field. That's really the only way you can really justify as slow as he is. I mean, that viral video that's gone around, Sam, him taking like a minute and a half to hit the ball when he's standing over is just getting a little bit ridiculous, but did go bogey-free yesterday. Shot two under on the front, three under on the back. Made nice birdies on 13-14 back-to-back and then birdied 16 Coming in, and then Jordan Spieth, who is the defending champion, who actually beat Patrick Cantlay in a playoff here last year, so might be turning into a little bit of a horses course, uh, horses for courses type of venue, and he had it rolling as well, but then had a, a very costly bogey on 17 coming in, and st- so instead of being 13 with Cantlay, he is now 12 under a little bit back, but then you have Scotty Scheffler there lurking, and you have a whole group of guys at 11 under as well. You got uh, Scotty, Scotty Scheffler, as I mentioned, Jimmy Walker, Tommy Fleetwood, Taylor Moore, who won at the Valspar a few weeks ago, even Mark, Mark Hubbard, who no one's really looking at, made a nice birdie on 18 yesterday to vault himself up there, so uh, while it is very top-heavy at the top there, Sam, even going down to 10 under, you got Shoffley, you got Ricky Fowler there, uh, Ches is actually gaining, uh, I believe, leading the uh, field in strokes gain approach. Well, actually, he's uh, he's third in the field behind Rom and Shoffley. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of guys right there. And on a course like this, like you said, Sam, where you can make a lot of birdies, there's going to be a lot of volatility this afternoon. Well, there's no doubt about that. Jordan Spieth even said after his round yesterday, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically he said at the RBC, especially uh, more than any other tournament, on the PGA Tour on Sunday when you're in contention, you have to stay aggressive because you know there's just going to be birdie after birdie out there, especially when the course is this soft. So you could see mega fireworks uh, this afternoon. I want to talk about Taylor Moore, T-Dub. He continues to play really solid golf, made the cut at Augusta National last week. Uh, he's sitting there tied for fourth, 11 under, in line to have another great paycheck this week at this elevated event. And he is putting better than anybody in the top 20, really anybody in the event, gaining 2.53 shots on the greens, which is great to see from Taylor Moore. Now, he's not striking the ball as well as anybody in the top 20, but when you're rolling the rock like that, who cares, right? He's shot 68, 67, 67. What have you seen from our guy, friend of the show, Timor, this week? Well, it's exactly like you said, Sam. I mean, he's just putting so much better than everyone else. Going into this round, James Hahn is actually moving up to second in strokes game putting. But before this round, Matt Kuchar was second in strokes game putting. And just for perspective, Taylor Moore's gaining about two and a half shots on the field putting. Matt Kuchar gaining 1.8. So, I mean, almost seven-tenths of a shot more than second best. So, he's just been absolutely cashing in. And you just mentioned the steady play, Sam. I mean, he's only missed one cut going all the way back to the American Express this year. In January, he has, uh, what is that, four top 15s since then. As you mentioned, made the cut at the Masters. Has not lost strokes gain on the greens, gone all the way back to the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So whatever it is, Sam, he's always been a great putter, but he's gotten something really figured out because not only is he just gaining a little bit of shots, he's gaining a lot there. So, But you did mention it, comparatively to everyone else at the top, he's not really striking the ball. The best is gaining a little bit of shots approach, but off the tee and around the greens, he's really about neutral, which uh, the last couple weeks with his driver has been really exceptional. I actually, out of uh, out of the last nine weeks that he's played on tour, only one of those has he lost strokes gain off the tee. So, I mean, Sam, if Taylor Moore can kind of get it figured out, we talked about it's a placement golf course. You probably have to play here a couple times to really know exactly where to position it. So maybe he's learned that through the first few rounds and can really get him out there because he keeps putting like this, Sam. He's going to have a great chance to win. There's no doubt about that. There's some interesting names sitting there at tied for fourth, 11 under. Let's start with Scotty Scheffler, T-Dub. I mean, yesterday at one point, he got it all the way to 12 under and then plays his last eight holes at one over par, which is not very good at all um, at Harbortown. But he's still sitting there, only three shots back, headed into this final round. 
Let me ask you this question before we get to Scotty Scheffler specifically. Would you rather be Maddie Fitz and have the lead but only a one-shot lead over Cantlay and a two-shot lead over Spieth and then all these guys at 11 under uh, that definitely have the minerals to go out and win? Or would you rather be chasing on this Sunday? I think there's pros and cons to both of them, but I think at the end of the day, if you can st- start more shots ahead than someone else, then I think that's more advantageous for sure. But, yeah, I mean, if you if you are coming back and chasing, you can go out and kind of apply a little bit of pressure. Um, I think what makes it a little bit crazy is that, so there's uh, there's uh, T4 is 11 under, T9 is 10 under, and then 9 under is T16. So, I mean, the 11 and 10 unders right there are just absolutely jam-packed. And then on this course, Sam, as well, the, the second hole and the fifth hole, are, uh, are par fives, so that's really a spot where you have to be able to take advantage of those spots and really get out and, and post a little bit of a low number because actually holes two, five, and six are all, at least yesterday, all played a decent amount under par. So if you can just get past the third hole, the third hole was playing a little bit hard yesterday, playing almost two-tenths of a shot over par, and then number th- or number four is a 200-yard par three. So if you can get past those two holes, make some birdies on those par fives, you can really get out and make a little bit of, of a, jeep, or a jump. And then let's say Matty Fitz goes out and he doesn't take advantage of those par fives, maybe plays three or four, Madden comes out at one over, Patrick Cantlay maybe does something similar. One of those guys can go out and really elevate themselves because if one of those guys goes out and shoots 63 like Manny Fitz did yesterday, it's going to be extremely hard, maybe impossible to catch him. T-Dub, I need your help trying to figure out Scotty Scheffler's putting. I'm looking at round two, and Scotty Scheffler in round two gained over three shots on the field strokes gained putting. Now, in round three, he goes out there and loses a full shot on the greens. Why has he been so inconsistent this year? And yes, he has been the best ball striker along with John Rahm on the PGA Tour. That's why he's had the success that he's had. But if go back and look at his strokes game putting, T-Dub, and he's been extremely inconsistent, especially compared to the start of the year last year. Why do you think that is? It is extremely streaky, and I think a lot of it, at least what I saw at the Masters, it has gotten a little bit mental at this point. I mean, you don't see Scotty Sheffield get frustrated very much, and and especially I believe it was the second round at Augusta. Man, he was just, he was over it. He was looking at Ted Scott, yelling, I mean, cussing sometimes. It's like, man, this is really uncharacteristic, and rightfully so. I mean, last week he, uh, he, at least at one point, I do think at the end of the tournament he was still in the spot where he led the tournament. Strokes gained T to green. His putter was just absolutely horrible. Lost more than a full shot. On the greens, and you look at it this week, Sam, as you mentioned, had a had a, the second round, he gained uh, more than three shots on the greens, just putted absolutely beautifully. And then yesterday, lost uh, lost a full shot on the greens, lost a half a shot around the greens. Um, really had a horrible uh, up and down when it come to number seventeen, which uh, as coming in, as you mentioned, Sam, he was kind of kind of coasting in, didn't really have anything special, and then had a very very simple up and down on seventeen, wasn't able to get it in. So yeah, I think it is a little bit mental. Didn't hit a very good punt on that hole, and uh, yeah, I just think it's something that once he misses a couple putts that he should make I think it's something that there, there is something mental there and uh, maybe he can he's having an off on off on deal where in the in the first round he didn't put very good third round didn't put very good second round he put it great so maybe he'll have it a uh, little bit inverse effect here and put good this afternoon and if he does he's going to definitely make a move at Matty Fitz and Patrick Cantley well there's no doubt about it and we're obviously holding Scotty Scheffler to a high standard but he's had a lot of rounds where he's been below or a lot of tournaments where he's been below average on the field putting p-dub Imagine if he was just a little above average putting this year, he would be, you know, winning everything, right? I mean, 
it's, I don't think I'm crazy to say that. I think he'd be at even a higher level than even we've seen John Rahm at the start of this year. Well, it's, you look at Scotty Scheffler and you talk about him, and no one really realizes that analytically he is the best ball striker in the world, and it's by a decent amount. When you include driver and irons, he's better than Rahm, Rory, all those guys, by, by tenths of shots, which is an astronomical amount when you're talking about this level of golf. And you mentioned the inconsistency in the putter, Sam, I mean, luckily he's been able to correct a little bit compared to the end of last year because, remember, Sam, after he won the Masters last year, he went on a stretch of, of about 12 tournaments where only about three of them he gained strokes gained putting. I mean, his putter the last half of last year was absolutely horrible. And at least at the start of this year, he's he's about half and on. He's lo- he's gained strokes in five tournaments. He's lost strokes in three tournaments. So it's it's still very inconsistent. But you look at it, Sam, I mean, I can't go – I have to go all the way back to the FedEx St. Jude last year to find a time that he he didn't gain strokes approach, and I have to go all the way back to the PGA Championship last year at Southern Hills to find a time where he did not strokes gain off of the tee. So his swing is always there. That's one of those things that's never going to break down. And it seems like the putter is a little bit more consistent than it was at the end of last year. But uh, as we saw last week at Augusta, and we even saw a little bit yesterday, his bad rounds aren't just a little bit mediocre. They're really bad, and they can cost him a lot when it comes to four rounds of a tournament. No doubt about it. So we're talking about one of the highest ranked guys in this golf tournament. Let's talk about one of the lowest ranked guys in this golf tournament. That's the great, great thing about golf, T-Dub, is these guys are tied with each other uh, at 11 under headed into Sunday. That's Jimmy Walker. Yes, the same Jimmy Walker that won a major back in 2016. T-Dub, number one, a lot of people are probably listening to this show saying, wait a second. How is Jimmy Walker in an elevated event? Well, I'll tell you, it's because he was ranked 59th in career uh, in the career money list, right, T-Dub? And so career earnings. And so then uh, when the live guys or when the guys went to live, that opened up nine more spots for Jimmy Walker to end up getting in that top 50, which allows him to get into these elevated events. And so he is taking advantage of it. Give credit to Jimmy Walker uh, who basically said, look, this is my last chance to make a whole bunch of money in the game of golf. And he's taken advantage of it, tied for fourth at 11 under. Unfortunately, did shoot 72, one over par in the third round. But he opened up uh, this RBC Heritage with a pair of 65. Jimmy Walker, by the way, all you Oklahoma City people out here, he went to uh, Hefner Middle School. And then he was kind of an Army kid, moved around. Um, you know, throughout his childhood. But Jimmy Walker did go to uh, middle school here, right down the street here at Hefner Middle School. But he's 11 under, former major champion, but also ranked in the 400s, and he's not on live. You know, T-Dub, there's a lot of guys in the world right now, like Phil Mickelson, who are ranked in the 400s. But this guy has actually played terrible golf over the last, I don't know, three years, T-Dub. And all of a sudden, 11 under with a chance to win at the RBC Heritage this Sunday. That would be a hell of a story. It absolutely would be. I mean, he had, you know, the Lyme disease and all that stuff that really hindered his career. I mean, he was a fabulous player. What was it? Only about eight years ago. So he won the PGA in 2016, as you mentioned, at Baltusrol. But even 2014, 2015, he was actually a better player then than he was even when he won. He was actually kind of falling off a little bit whenever he won that, that PGA championship. So it was a little bit cool to see. And as you mentioned, was born in Oklahoma City, so nice to be able to represent our state well there as well. And yeah, he just, he had not been, even the times that he had played, Sam, he had not been playing very well at all. I mean, going back on, he had, you know, a few top 25s in there going all the way back the last two years, but so many more missed cuts in there. And uh, you look at his game compared to where it was at his best. I mean, the only thing that's relatively the same is his chipping. I mean, his putting's worse. 
is uh, his his iron play is exceptionally worse, and he does not hit the ball near as far as he used to. So those are all three extremely main things that are hitting him down. And yeah, it is cool that that do I agree with the fact of you have players go to live and you automatically take them off of the top fifty career money list. I mean, it seems a little ridiculous to me, but it has been able to help out someone like Jimmy Walker, who pretty much just said he was done with it. Right, he was ready to uh, take care of the family and just kind of hang him up, but has been given a second chance, and it's good that he's been able to take advantage of that. But as you mentioned, Sam really didn't have his best stuff yesterday. Had those back-to-back bogeys on 14 and 15. Actually got really lucky on 14, the par 3. Hit the planks and it kicked over to the left of the green as opposed to going in the water. And then on 15, hit the top of the tree and went down. Actually, was going to have to take a worse drop. Uh, The rules official was going to make him, but Scotty Scheffler came out and said, hey, man, his ball crossed way up here. Actually gave him uh, a few more yards there, so maybe saved him a shot on that aspect. So, uh, And that's what happens, Sam, right? Whenever you're not in contention like that, it takes a while to uh, to get the juices back and to get that feeling. So maybe he can show him this, you know, to, uh, today he is a major champion. So he's proved that he's been able to do it. But uh, at least what I saw in that back nine, Sam, it'll be nice for Jimmy Walker to make a check, maybe get some FedEx points. But uh, I'm not sure I really put a lot of stock in him being able to make a push with all these big names, especially all those people that are jam-packed at 11 and 10 under. P-Dub, one more guy that we need to get to here before we hit a break. Do you think that Tommy Fleetwood can finally win on the PGA Tour today? I know he finished tied for third at the Valspar a couple weeks ago. Uh, he did win the Ned Bank Golf Challenge, but that was not on the PGA Tour. That was a DP World Tour event. Um, has only missed one cut so far in 2023. He's playing some better golf than he played, especially last year. Uh, seems like he's kind of getting back to that Ryder Cup type Tommy Fleetwood that we all remember. Um, but T-Dub, number one, what does Tommy Fleetwood have to do to win today? And do you think he can actually get it done? Do I think he can? Yes. Do I think he will? No. I mean, I just don't think his time is now. I mean, he had a fabulous second round, went out and shot 65. I believe he made eight birdies in that t- in that stretch as well. So he's going to need something like that, in all honesty. I mean, yesterday he had five birdies and two bogeys to shoot three under. So he's moving up. I just, especially, it's just. Go- I feel like we're going to see a similar round from Tommy Fleetwood to what we saw at the Valspar when Taylor Moore won. He's going to play, he's going to play halfway solid, maybe finish top five, but he's just not going to do those things that you need to do to win the tournament. He's not going to go out and grab the bull by the horns and, and say, this is my championship to win. I just think there's too many good guys around there. He does have good record of this course, though, Sam. He's played here three times, made the cut two out of three, a, a 25th and a 10th in there. So he definitely likes this venue. I do think it is a good course for Tommy Fleetwood. I just don't think it's times now. I think that to win your first time in the United States in an elevated event with all these great players up there, I think it's a tough ask, but uh, he, he will win in the United States at some point. I, I just think it's going to come in a couple weeks or maybe even a year or something like that. I just don't think it's going to come today. I know that betters or guys in Vegas love to look at trends. One of the trends that the RBC Heritage has is there's been some journeyman winners, right? Like Satoshi Kodaira or Wesley Bryan, C.T. Penn, Carl Peterson, Brian Gay. Uh, Brian Gay actually won the tournament by 10 shots. Uh, but this week, I mean, you could have Jimmy Walker. You could have Mark Hubbard. Um, Cam Davis is up there. You know, do you think that even though this is an elevated event, that there's a chance that that trend might continue? Uh, it's similar to what we talked about, Tommy Fleetwood. Is there a chance? Yes, but I think it's I think it's very very low. I mean, you look at the percentage of chances of guys who could win. You got Matty Fitz at about twenty six percent currently. Patrick Cantlay is the leader at twenty eight percent. Speaks at ten percent. Scotty Scheffler at eight percent. Just to put that in perspective, someone like Jimmy Walker is just a little bit below one percent of a chance to win. Tommy Fleetwood's at about 
little over 3% chance. Mark, Mark Hubbard is almost at 2%. So pretty pretty drastic difference there when it comes to that. And, and so you're exactly right, Sam, when the fact that this tournament just wasn't an elevated event. Yes, there was always good players who would go play it because it's really not that far from Augusta. But the general amount of people would not go from Augusta to this tournament. But with the exception of Rory, every single great player is there. And uh, I just think there's too many great players up there at the top for, uh, for a Mark Hubbard or a Jimmy Walker to come out and get that first win. In a while, even someone like an Emilio Lagrillo or your boy Hayden Buckley, Sam, down there at 10 under. Other weeks you think would have a good chance. This week I just think there's too many good players up there. And you got to think out of uh, Fitz, Cantlay, Speeds, Scheffler, one of those guys just going to go out and have a really good round and kind of uh, maybe not necessarily run away with it, but definitely get some separation between uh, some of those lesser names. Yeah, we'll definitely dive into this tournament a little bit more. Last guy, T-Dub. Ricky Fowler is chilling right there at 10 under par, tied for ninth in the golf tournament. And Ricky has been putting a whole lot better this year, has gained over a full shot on the field in four different events, um, hasn't missed a cut uh, since the Shriners Children's Open T-Dub. I really like Ricky Fowler this week. Um, you know, I think that he could be one of those guys at 10 under, along with like a Xander Shoffley to possibly – uh, you know, what's, what's he shot this week? 67, 68, 68. I, I feel like he could throw a, a low one out there out there um, this afternoon and possibly contend, uh, you know, later on Sunday. I mean, you got to think Ricky's going to get up there and at least really, really contend in a tournament. He's had a lot of great finishes, but really the exception of the Zozo Championship back in October where he finished second, and even then, I feel like Keegan Bradley had, had that baby sewn up for a decent while. As he really hasn't had a chance. I mean, he's gotten up in the leaderboard maybe at the start of Sundays and early on, but then it'll just kind of fizzle away. But this is a good sign, Sam, because going into this, this tournament, he had played the RBC Heritage six times, and he missed the cut in five of them. So it's a good sign that he went to a course that he – Definitely does not like you. Don't miss a cut five out of six times at a course and like that place. So I mean, it's uh, he's definitely figured something out at this venue. And and as you mentioned with the iron play, I mean he's hitting his irons exceptionally. You have to go. I, I feel like a broken record because I keep saying this about him on our podcast, but he has not lost strokes gain approach since the, the FedEx St Jude back in August. So I mean his iron play has just been absolutely exceptional. And then this week, as you mentioned too, he is gaining uh, some shots on the greens putting as well, which uh, he was the best putter in the world there for a while, but uh, has had to go to the little bit of a longer putter. But it does seen to be working for him. But you look at him yesterday, Sam, kind of on his last 11 holes, or actually his last 12 holes, he played those at even par with a bogey on seven and a birdie on 16. So needs to make a little bit more of a run. He could have easily gotten himself up in the 11, 12 under range and had a little bit better position. But still down there at 10 and under. think he may... Don't think this is his time either. Like I, said, I just think those other big names are a little bit too up there. But but Ricky has definitely been showing some great form. And uh, is it, when is it going to come? That is the ultimate question. But uh, you got to think that he's just got to put himself in position, and then eventually he'll get that win. Everyone around here is definitely rooting for Ricky Fowler, and it brings me back to the, the two main rules, T-Dub. Never leave a Harmon brother, and when you leave a Harmon brother, definitely go back to a Harmon brother ever since he went back to Butch. It has definitely looked better from Ricky Fowler. We got to hit a break here, but if you want to weigh in, uh, next segment, 405-900-9957 is the Trade Pros Heat and Air Tech Nation line and the Lucky Star line. If you want to call in, ask your golf questions, we can talk Augusta, RBC, whatever you guys want to get into here on the 73rd Hold Radio Show on the Sports Animal. And we are back here on the 73rd Hold Radio Show. Taylor Williams, Sam Humphreys, and Preston Poole with you until noon. 
Hope everybody's enjoying this beautiful Sunday. A little chilly out there, but there might be some good golf weather later on today. But it's going to be a two-TV type day, Preston. I mean, I know that you're a big sports guy. You're probably looking forward to the the Lakers and the Grizzlies later on today. That's going to be get-your-popcorn-ready type TV. But you also got to throw on some RBC Heritage on today as well. Uh, yeah, we we got two TVs in my living room, so we'll uh, we'll get it going. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, T Dub, we've been talking a lot of professional golf on this show over the past couple of weeks. Um, obviously, with the Masters last week, and then an elevated event this week. But I want to switch gears for a second. I want to talk some college golf. OU, remember before we went to Augusta National. Uh, OU did get the win at Harding Park in San Francisco. Um, T-Dub, I mean, Ben Lorenz won that golf tournament, ends up playing as the one bag in Purdue's Boilermaker Invitational over the last couple of days. Um, He finishes tied for 10th. Patrick Welch finishes third in the golf tournament. By the way, in that final round, Patrick Welch, Vinny, the cross-handed bandit, uh, had a – a six hole stretch where he went five under par on that front nine to kind of vault OU up the leaderboard a little bit more than they already were. Um, but then Stephen Campbell jr. Top 20 in the tournament drew Goodman top 20 in the tournament and Jace Summy, the freshman playing as the five man wins the golf tournament. T-Dub at 11 under individually. Now, OU finishes second in the golf tournament to Purdue, but only by one shot. Purdue ends up winning at 30 under par. OU finishes at 29 under par. And if you haven't heard me talk about this, listeners out there, in college golf, it's very, very difficult to beat a team playing on their home course, especially a ranked team like Purdue playing on their home course. Purdue ranked 38th in the country, which is solid in, in college golf. There's a lot of good teams. Any Anyone within the top 50 is, is pretty solid. Um, now you have the elite teams up in the top 15 to 20 range. Um, but playing a team like Purdue on their home course, you're probably not expected to win. They qualify on that course every single day. They practice on that course every single day. It's a bigger home court or field or whatever you want to say advantage than any other sport um, in, in in the NCAA, T-Dub. So I'm looking at this golf tournament, T-Dub. Number one, OU as a team played really consistent golf. And number two, to have a freshman, Jay Summy, go out there, Get in number one, get in the starting lineup as the five man and go out there and win the golf tournament. That's number two. And then number three, Ryan Hibble has figured out in the last two events. We talked a lot about how the individuals for Ryan have played a whole lot better at times than the guys that he put in that five spot. It seems like he's finally finding a groove as the coach, figuring out who is actually playing the best golf to put in that five man lineup and they're not necessarily having individuals play better than the five and four bags, right, T-Dub? It can definitely be a challenge when you have that loaded of a team. And, and yes, you're 100% right, Sam. I mean, the, the home course in golf has got to be the biggest advantage, and particularly all the sports you just don't see at the professional level because very, very few guys play at their home course. But even that, I feel like, is a little bit different from an individual compared to a team because you have five players counting four scores. I mean, yes, it is absolutely hard to be because, you know, Purdue, as you mentioned, they're ranked either 38th or around 40th, depending on which ranking you look at. And so just to put that in perspective, that's a that's pretty much they're a fringe team to get in the NCAA championship. They'll be at regionals really battling in because, was it, 30 or 32 teams or something like that make it to national. So they're right on the cusp. So they are a very, very solid team. 
And OU to only lose by one is a very good sign. It seems like they may be peaking at the right time. And and another good point you made, Sam, is just not having the, the great individual go out and win the tournament or something like that, as we saw in the first couple of weeks, because it can be hard to uh, to get a right balance on that. But OU has officially concluded their regular season. They are they are on to the postseason. They will be playing the Big 12 championships at Prairie Dunes that we were at a couple years ago, Sam. So it'll be really interesting to see them up there. Then after that, Sam, they'll go to regionals and then uh, hopefully go to nationals from there. So uh, we've officially kind of reached the peak of, of college golf season. It is very close to being upon us, and it looks like OU is starting to get things figured out at the right time. No doubt about it. And kind of so is Oklahoma State, T-Dub. They are sneakily, you know, playing some really solid golf. They're ranked 21st in the country headed into this week, and they are playing at the Thunderbird uh, Collegiate in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, T-Dub, Arizona State ends up winning this golf tournament. Um, They were 28 under par. Arizona was 27 under par. There's a common theme there that normally the teams that are playing around home normally play a little bit better. But there were some other solid teams in this golf tournament. I say solid. I mean elite. North Carolina, the number two team in the country, my pick to win it all, T-Dub, finishes at 20 under par. Um, You know, Dylan Minetti, who we used to see play for uh, the Pepperdine Waves, Uh, He is their one bag and finished tied for 12th in the golf tournament. David Ford, the best sophomore in the country, uh, one of the best sophomores in the country, finished tied for 7th at 6th under par. Austin Greaser, we saw in the Masters last year, top 20 in this tournament as well. Um, It's interesting looking at North Carolina um, because sometimes Ryan Burnett, like he won a golf tournament earlier this year, they're four man, but then he throws in a high for 28 this week, you know, or Pete, Peter Fountain, uh, you know, they're five bag tied for 41st this week at two over North Carolina has the best lineup as far as having three guys that have experience and, uh, you know, all the talent in the world. But at the same time, if you don't get that play from your four and five bag, considering it's a, a play five count four sport, um, man, I might kind of favor a team like Arizona State who's been playing great golf. They're ranked fifth in the country right now. Or, uh, you know, we could go on down to like Texas Tech with Ludwig Aberg and uh, or obviously Vanderbilt with Cole Sargent and all the boys they have over there. Um, that makes me a little nervous for my North Carolina pick that I made before the season. But let's get back to Oklahoma State. They finished fourth in this golf tournament at 17 under par. Uh, Rasmus Neergaard Peterson uh, played as the one bag in this event. He finished tied for 12th at four under. Jonas Baumgartner finished tied for 20, 20th at two under par. Um, Baumgartner, he needs to be playing at a little bit more of an elite level. Tied for 20th is not going to necessarily get the job done for Oklahoma State to win golf tournaments, uh, considering their four and five bag have not necessarily played at an elite level this year. And Baumgartner has the ability to do that. He needs to play a little bit better. Um, but what I really like is like Bo Jin. He's finally playing some solid golf again, uh, tied for 12th at four under par. Um, Hazen Newman tied for 20th. And then Leo Oyo did end up finishing uh, two over for the golf tournament. But T-Dub, I do see some little glimpses with Oklahoma state where I think that if, Somehow they got through stroke play. And by the way, there's no given that they even make the the NCAA tournament this year. If they had one or two bad days uh, at the uh, regionals, there's no chance or there's no, uh, you know, 100% chance that they're going to get into that top four of their region. But let's say they do. If they throw a solid couple of rounds in that stroke play portion of the national championship and sneak into the match play, 
I could see Rasmus Nearguard Peterson and Baumgarner and Bo Jin winning their matches. And then all of a sudden you have an Oklahoma State team that's not necessarily as talented as teams in the past. And obviously with Brian Stark leaving to go to Texas in the middle of the year, and now he's playing for Texas, it's not necessarily the year that Oklahoma State wanted. And especially with Chikara leaving school after he said he was coming back and going to live, uh, a lot of challenges that Oklahoma State has had. But at the same time, T-Dub, I still see glimpses that make me think maybe they could be a fringe match play team, and if they snuck into match play, who knows? I mean, in, in match play, absolutely anything can happen. It does seem like that, sort of like OU, they are peaking at the right time, which is exceptionally important, but do need to put it in perspective, Sam. You know, they are 19, 20, 20, somewhere around there, depending on the rankings, and, and as we mentioned earlier, the, the cutoff is about 30th, and let's not forget, was it last year or two years ago with OU, and they barely got into the NCAA championship? In New Mexico, and they had to play, they, OU was the number one seed and had to play in New Mexico at New Mexico's home course against New Mexico. And so, exactly right. They were the number one seed, and they barely got through. So, I mean, the, the thing that the number 19 team may potentially not make it through is absolutely something that could happen. So, it would be an absolute travesty with the, the history and tradition that the Oklahoma State golf program has. But, yeah, it looks like that they're they st- they're starting to get it rolling because you can look at it from two perspectives, Sam. You can look at it and say, oh, well, this tournament was out in in, in Arizona, so Arizona and Arizona State are clearly going to do good. But then you look at where Nationals always is a Greyhawk. Well, that, and that's in Arizona. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a catch-22 there. But there is definitely some momentum to build off of. Even some teams even a little bit lower down in this field, Sam. I mean, Texas was in the field. They only finished at four under. Texas Tech finished eighth. They've only shot even par for the tournament. So, uh, you know, some teams were a little bit down. And one thing that is good, I feel like, for OSU, even compared to OU, as we just alluded to, OSU took four individuals to this tournament, and none of the individuals stepped up the highest was Dylan Stewart, who finished two over 41st. So none of those individuals really ran out and made a push to say, we need to be in this top five here. So I think OSU going into Big 12 Championship has their big their top five set, and hopefully they can play some good golf going forward because uh, if they go out with just their average stuff going into regionals, they're going to be right on the line. They're going to have a lot more nervousness than they need to, but as long as they go out and play, I don't even think they have to play great. I think they just play just slightly above average. They'll make it in the Nationals, but they're going to have to play really, really good if they want to make it to the match play, as you were alluding to. No doubt about it. That's prognosticating Oklahoma State. Now, let's go back to OU. What would you consider a success for OU this year? I think that the way they have played, not only in San Francisco at Harding Park a couple weeks ago, but now, you know, finishing second at the Boilermaker Invitational with and both having individual wins, Ben Lorenz at, at, at uh, the first one in San Francisco, and then obviously Jay Summy uh, here at the Die Course at the Boilermaker, uh, both winning individually, T-Dub. I think that the expectation level has jumped through the roof in the last couple of weeks to where I think that before, I was like, yeah, oh, you might be able to make match play this year, but they're young and they haven't necessarily found the right lineup. I think it would be a disappointment if OU didn't make match play at Greyhawk this year, just based off what I've seen in the second half of this year. They played really, really good golf. Oh, it would 100% be a disappointment if they didn't make match play. Currently, they're ranked around 10th or 11th on the ranking somewhere in there. And so, yeah, you're going to have to be in the top eight to make it. And, uh, I mean, just the, the fact of – 
OU's gotten to a point now to where they are they're kind of like the football program was. I mean, maybe not necessarily this year, a couple years ago, where it's national championship or bust. And I feel like at least within the program, that that's probably where it's at. I mean, I don't think they would be happy with with making it to say the final four or even the uh, the final match and not winning. I don't feel like maybe on some levels you could consider that a success, but I think with the 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 level of program that Ryan Hibble has been able to build there, I think it's national championship or bust. But it's just with how much they lost last year, losing the uh, the Ben Hogan Award winner, Chris Goddard up, Logan McAllister, and, and all those guys. I mean, it's just you have to replenish so much talent. So it's hard to just say, all right, let's replace those guys and then go out and, and win a national championship. So I, I do think you're right, Sam. If they don't make match play, it's 100% a disappointment. I think just you'd have to probably dive a little bit deeper and to say, okay, well, where does Ryan Hibble feel like with this and where they had to replenish all the talent that they lost? So for me – it's. Uh, I think match play is definitely a good goal. Once you get to match play, all you have to do is win three times, uh, three, and, and then you can move on. So, uh, but but at least from the the standard that Oklahoma golf has set, I think it's national championship or bust on that level. Speaking of the rankings, Vanderbilt is the number one team in the country. North Carolina, number two. Texas Tech, number three. That's going to be a really interesting Big Twelve championship. Last time the OU and OSU will be in the Big Twelve championship. Uh, together, T-Dub, that's going to be interesting at Prairie Dunes coming up in their next event. Illinois is number four, and Arizona State is number five. And then I go to uh, the individual rankings, T-Dub. Are there any names that jump off the screen for you on individual rankings, just as far as like Gordon Sargent or obviously Ludwig Aberg or Sam Bennett, like we saw at Augusta National, obviously Sargent has played a little bit better than Bennett in college golf, but Bennett showed what he can do at Augusta National, and then Ludwig Aberg showed what he can do on both levels, whether it be at Bay Hill um, or at you know in, in his college events as well. Out of those three guys, which one are you taking on your team? Well, I mean that's that's the all American question there, ain't it? I mean, so you can just look at look at the teams that those three are on, right? So Gordon Sargent's on Vanderbilt, which is ranked number one. Texas Tech is fourth, where uh, Lovett Aberg is on, and Sam Bennett's on Texas A&M, who's ranked fifteenth. So I mean, you look at that, and Sam Bennett really hasn't had the best collegiate year. I mean, he won back what was it back in February, but his last three starts were not very high as well. So I don't know. Everyone talked about how great Gordon Sargent was, saying he's like the Wimby Wimbenyama of the P- of essentially amateur golf. I mean, he has one hundred ninety ball speed, which is absolutely astronomical, but from everything I saw of Lovett Aberg, I mean, that just seems like a player who's going to be so hard to beat. Then you had a guy who was in the final group of the Masters, so I mean, I mean, Sam, the question you asked me here is absolutely loaded and just so hard to do it. I mean, I, I feel like any team that you have it on is solid. I think that at this point, you have to look at who has the better team around them, and at least at this point, I think Gordon Sargent has the best team around him, because Vanderbilt, as they prove in the course of this year, is absolutely loaded. No doubt about it, and I should mention Michael Torbjornson as well for Stanford. Now, Stanford did end up losing to Pepperdine at that Western Intercollegiate that we saw on the Golf Channel earlier on this week. David Ford up there in the top five, uh, and DeChassa from Illinois. Illinois has been playing some really good golf. Uh, those guys round out your top five individuals on the golf stat rankings. The last thing I will say is Sargent, in his last 18 events in college golf or in amateur golf as a whole, his worst finish is tied for seventh. Think about that, T-Dub. 18 events and your worst finish is tied for seventh. That is some really solid play. You're going to get to see those guys at Greyhawk coming up here in a couple of weeks or really a month or so. T-Dub, let's hit a break. And then after the break, I have some thoughts on possibly having some changes to professional golf that kind of mirror the MLB. 
I'll give my thoughts on that coming up after the break here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show on Oklahoma's leader in golf, the Sports Animal. And we are back here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show on the Sports Animal. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole with you until noon. P-Dub, before the break, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about some rule changes that I think would be necessary in professional golf. Let me give you a stat from the final round at Augusta National. P-Dub. Brooks Kepka and John Rahm spent 97 minutes on the tee boxes throughout the round waiting to hit their shot. Now, obviously, a lot has been said. Brooks Kepka was asked the question about the slow play, and he said that John went to the bathroom seven times and Patrick Cantlay was brutally slow. And then Patrick Cantlay kind of claps back and says, I was waiting too, which technically I was out there, T-Dub, is true on the front nine because they went off both tees and they caught the people that went off the back nine. So eventually it's going to slow down on that front nine. But unfortunately for, Pat, uh, for Patrick Cantlay, uh, on that second nine at Augusta National, he wasn't waiting on anybody. Everybody was just waiting on him. And then Patrick Cantlay claps back this week and says, playing faster, and and tweeted out a video of him making an ace at the RBC. So I don't think that he really appreciated people thinking that he plays slow. But T-Dub, I have a solution so everybody can stop arguing. We've seen how great, and and Preston, I can probably get your thoughts on this, you being such a big baseball fan. I think that the pitch clock in professional baseball has been awesome. The games are shorter. They're more fun to watch on TV. Now, there's all they're always fun to go to, right? But I will say that golf's a little bit different, when, especially when you're following the group and walking. It's pretty annoying when the play is so slow and you're out there walking for an extra 97 minutes. Number one, I'll go to Preston. I mean, do you agree with me that the pitch clock has been good in baseball? Oh, yeah, 100%. It just makes the game, A, faster, which that's what everyone wants. You don't want to be sitting there for, you know, three and a half hours trying to watch a game. And, two, I mean, it, it, people are stealing bases, you know, more. They're, you know, right. still getting hits and stuff like that. So not really much has changed, you know. Exactly. So in golf, I think the solution, and we see this in soccer, a guy holds up a clock in soccer. I think you could have a walking bear with a clock with every single group. I think we could make that happen on the PGA Tour and on Live and in the major championships, P-Dub. Tell me if you think I'm crazy, but have a 45-second shot clock on these guys and make these rounds go faster and give them one warning and then start penalizing these guys. And then you say, wait, Sam, there's a lot of gray area. You know, what if a guy hits it over there in the woods? Well, the, the clock doesn't start until, number one, you find your ball. And I would also throw in the rule that if you have, uh, you know, a rules official involved in the shot you're about to hit, then the clock stops. The clock only starts when you find your ball and are able to hit your shot, right? When you are to your ball, right? And and I think that a lot of the time that Patrick Cantlay was spending was on and around the greens, which isn't gray area. He's just taking super long, which is ironic because the video that is going viral on Twitter, I think, and, and, and I think this video was from him at the 2018 PGA at Bell Reeve, where he spent almost a minute over the ball. That is the type of crap that has to get cut out of not just professional golf, but just golf in general. All the aim point stuff I feel like is getting out of hand with guys reading putts. 
I feel like putting a shot clock on these guys, and I, this may be unpopular, T-Dub, I think it's a good change, and I think it needs to happen sooner rather than later. And just considering the fact that golf is so popular now that it's pretty much equal or even more popular than the sport of professional baseball right now, you don't want to see a situation where people get tired of watching golf because it's too slow. What's so funny is that you had the quote-unquote golf traditionalist last week who, when Brooks Koepka's caddy told Gary Woodland's caddy he had a five iron, you had to, oh, well, you got to stroke him, you got to stroke him. And it's like, you're, Woody pointed this out on the podcast, you only have 40 seconds to hit your ball. That is an official rule in golf, and it is so unenforced, it's unbelievable. You didn't have people come out clamoring, Patrick Cantley should be stroked because he's taking longer than 40 seconds to hit. No, but it is an actual rule, and I've been one of the biggest proponents of this uh, a shot clock in golf for years, Sam. I mean, yes, yes, as we mentioned on the podcast, Cantley was a little bit right last week because it was an exceptional situation. You had guys teeing off both nines at Augusta National, so yes, everyone was waiting but as you got to that back nine, Cantley was holding up, and, and all the guys, the final group behind him, and it was really, really the bad. The guy he, I felt the worst for was Hoblin, the yeah, guy that he was playing with. Yeah, and you, you saw that video on 13 of him hitting when Cantley was walking up, which you never see that on the PJ Tour. That's just the way it is. It's just, uh, Sam, this is something that is going to have to get done at some point because they've been trying to do things for all the over the last few years, right? Get rid of the green reading books. Like, they think that that's really the reason that pace of play slow. I mean, give me a break on that. I mean, that's just stupid. And, and that's so, another thing is ever since they got rid of Stracoline books, the books that tell you the slope and everything, I feel like guys have just spent even longer trying to figure out what the slope is. Everyone still aim points that already aim pointed before they got rid of the book, right? A hundred percent, Sam, and I think that this is the thing that I'm worried about, though. It's very similar to what the USGA and RNA have done with the distance debate, where it's they have all these plans in place, but they don't really have all the details lined out, right? Like, we've detailed it a lot on our show, but I, I feel like you have to implement some way to have extensions, right? Because if you get a gust to win, you should be able to back off your shot and go into it. The question is, well, how many times are you allowed to do that? How long is the extension? Um, things like you mentioned, you know, if you got a ball in the woods, when exactly does that clock start? And it needs to be very, very specific because the difference between, it, like, for example, then you have the, the scenario of, okay, well, if you miss the, a shot clock, if you hit your shot too late, well, then are you instantly penalized? I think that's a little bit little bit severe. So, I mean, is it a three strikes you're out type of thing? I think that would probably be the way to go. But that's the thing that I'm most worried about this, same is they may try to implement it, try to end the solution, but if they don't have every single one of these details lined out, you're going to have a very, very uh, convoluted rule situation come down at the end of the line. And that could end up being bad for golf, but hopefully it ends up being a similar aspect of baseball to where it is a positive. And I think overall – it would be the really the only other downside I could think of is, and I read something where baseball's kind of dealing with this, where the games can go so fast that they lose a lot of money on concessions and beer sales, stuff like that. So maybe the PGA Tour, I don't think we'd have to worry about that so much because you have guys teeing off at 8 a.m. and then you have guys teeing off at 1 p.m., so it's a little bit different on that aspect. But, but Sam, I just feel like they have to get every single thing dialed down if they do want to implement a change that would be this extreme. Yeah, and do you agree with me that the reason why, like this is a rule in the rule book, that you have 45 seconds to hit your shot once you get to your ball, assuming that there's no rule situation or trying to find your ball and all that stuff, T-Dub. Once you get to your ball and are able to hit your shot, you have 45 seconds. I feel like the reason it's not enforced is because you don't have a clock in front of you. I feel like that's very easy in 2023 to have someone holding a clock walking with the group, having a rules official with each group on the PGA Tour. I mean, the PGA Tour has magic money everywhere. Can they not pull out a million dollars to pay some extra standard bears to come carry a clock? 
Okay, so just to put this in perspective for other sports, just imagine NFL or NBA, right? Like, it was just a standard rule. Oh, you only have 24 seconds to, to shoot. But but it was never enforced, right? So you could just pass around for 45, 50 seconds before someone shoots. It's like, why do you even have the rule? It's stupid. And so, or, or NFL, there's 40 seconds to play. Oh, but we could take a minute and a half to pick our play. It's fine. It's like, I don't understand why it has not been enforced for this so long. That's the thing that boggles my mind, especially after we talked about last week with Bruce Kepka being all upset about a caddy telling the guy what club he hit. But you're not going to enforce what should be one of the most important rules in golf. It's ludicrous to me. And here would be my kind of argument to the golf traditionalist saying that this is a bad idea. Back in the day, golf was more of a reactive sport. And now it seems like guys are mathematicians out there, like the Cantleys of the world, like the Brysons of the world. That's never what golf was meant to be. Golf was meant to be a sport and reactive and things like that, T-Dub. I feel like if you sped these guys up, you would be able to see the athleticism even a little bit more than you already do, uh, especially on the short game shots and the little finesse shots. I feel like the best in the world, like the Phil Mickelsons of the world around the greens, right? Those guys don't spin forever. They're just artists and very visual people. And I feel like that you have to reward that. That's a talent and, and a skill that I feel like is being lost in the in the modern game. It 100% is. I mean, you also look at the old-style courses, right? They were on such smaller pieces of property, so there's a lot less walking that you had to do. And you're 100% right, too, on just people are so much more analytical now than they were. I mean, we didn't have they didn't have track mans back in Bobby Jones' day. You know, he wasn't sitting there. He didn't have a track of line book to figure out where the greens were. So, yeah, everyone's just a lot more meticulous now. But it's gotten to a point, Sam, to where it's just too extreme. And uh, there is going to have to be some sort of shot clock implemented at some point. I would be shocked if it doesn't happen within the next maybe five years would be a stretch. But I think within the next decade, we'll see it. But as I was alluding to earlier, if they come out and just try to force it out and say, all right, we're going to throw a shot clock out there and see what happens. It's uh, There's going to be a lot of situations, like you mentioned, with the ball going in the trees, trying to figure out where to drop a ball like we saw yesterday with Jimmy Walker. There's a, Those are all things they have to get lined out before they try to do uh, You can something. even give the guys a timeout, too. You can give them a timeout. Exactly. That goes back you know to I mean? like the extension a thing. Yeah. Situation, yeah, exactly. Give them an extension or something like that. We can talk more about that in the coming weeks. I do feel like T-Dub, the main thing, is if Augusta National said we're doing it, then the rest of golf is going to follow and go ahead and do it. Uh, T-Dub, that does it for us for this first hour. We'll be with you until noon here talking RBC and a lot of other things. If you want to weigh in on our Lucky Star Line, 405-900-9957. Tell us if you like the shot clock idea in golf. Tell us who you think is going to win the RBC this afternoon. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole with you till noon on the 73rd Hole Radio Show on Oklahoma's Leader in Golf, the sports animal. That is right. It is the 73rd Hole Radio Show right here on the sports animal. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole getting you ready for the last round of the RBC Heritage T-Dub. And normally we give our best bet late in the show. Um, but we're going to go ahead and do it now, this segment, because the tee times have been moved up a little bit. The leaders, like I mentioned earlier, will be going off at noon central time, one Eastern time in South Carolina. T-Dub, let's recap this one more time. If people missed it or just getting out of church, Matthew Fitzpatrick is in the lead by himself at 14 under. Patrick Cantlay is solo second at 13 under. Jordan Spieth is solo third at 12 under. Then you have a slew of guys, Tommy Fleetwood, Mark Hubbard, Taylor Moore, friend of the show, um, 
Scotty Scheffler, Jimmy Walker, all those guys are tied for fourth at 11 under. You have Cam Davis, Ricky Fowler, Emiliano Grillo, uh, Matt Kuchar, Chez Reeve, and Xander Shoffley. And uh, those guys are all at 10 under. And Justin Rose is now two under through two. So some definite birdies out there early on today, as we suspected. Uh, Justin Rose has vaulted himself up into the top 10 after two holes of his final round. T-Dub, number one, the question that I always ask you every week on this show leading into these final rounds is how um, far down the list here, how far down the leaderboard do you think has a chance to win this golf tournament? Do you think it ends at 10 under? Do you think it ends at 9 under? Um, There's just a lot of guys, T-Dub, like you said, uh, tied for nine or tied for fourth is 11 under and then tied for ninth is 10 under and then tied for 17th is nine under a lot of guys bunched up there even though the top three spots uh all those guys Matthew Fitzpatrick Patrick Cantlay and Jordan Spieth are all in their spots solo but do you think that we get some fireworks from guys maybe in the nine under range eight under range like we saw Justin Rose he's two under he started the day at eight under already to 10 under how low do you think uh we can go down this leaderboard to find our winner t-dub i think nine under is a pretty good mark just to put it in perspective at the time that we're talking about this there are currently 27 guys within five shots of the lead so i mean that's just absolutely crazy how packed it is especially with this top big name of players that are there so yeah i would say nine under is probably far back um you've actually had some guys make a little bit of move colin morikawa started today at seven under he's two under through three john rom uh, birdied uh, one of his first two holes so he's uh one he's one under through two and you look at how it's played so far sam there have been in the first 10 holes there are have been six of them that are playing uh, at at least .2 shots under par, which means that there's been a lot of birdies made there. So uh, a lot of these guys, Sam, if they're going to want to go out and make a move, they're going to have to do it early because at least as of right now, holes 11 through 14 for the day have been playing a little bit tricky. But uh, with the exception of holes 3 and 4, like we were talking about earlier, Sam, holes uh, the first 10 holes here you really have to go out and get. So if one of those guys down at 10, 9 under, and even 8 under if there's someone down there who wants to make a move, they're going to have to do it very, very soon because uh, those first 10 holes are very gettable. Dub, let me give you some odds, some live odds before this final round. Matty Fitz is plus 240. Patrick Cantlay is plus 260. Jordan Spieth is plus 550. Uh, Scotty Scheffler is plus 700. Tommy Fleetwood is plus 2,000. Taylor Moore is plus 2,800. Um, and then you have some prop bets like plus 260 for Patrick Cantlay to finish in the top five. It's interesting that those top five, if you can get those prop bets, um, those odds are actually pretty good because the leaderboard at the top is so bunched up. Um, but T-Dub, do any of those odds really pique your interest? If it were me, I really like, and I know that I'm being biased here, I picked Jordan Speed to win this golf tournament, but leading into the final round, I can still get him at plus 550, and he's only two shots back, solo third. I, I think that plus 550 sounds pretty good to me on Jordan Speed. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a solid pick. If you were going to say who I would pick to necessarily, out of those very, very top guys, I'd probably go with Cantlay. Um, you can get a little bit more value on him. What would you say? Fitzpatrick, 240. Cantlay's 260. And Cantlay has a little bit of an yep. analytical lead to win. So I'd probably go with Cantlay there. But, but Sam, I think an absolute Yeah, steep- go ahead, T-Dub, real quick. Give, give us those percentages from Data Golf. What do what those percentages say to win the golf tournament today? Uh, okay, so here's the uh, the top four that have a chance to win the tournament. Uh, Patrick Cantlay, 28%. Uh, 
Uh, Matty Fitz, 26%. Jordan Speed, 10%. Scotty Scheffler, just a little bit below 9%. Then we have a pretty big drop-off. Then we go down to uh, Tommy Fleetwood at about just a little over 3%. And then also at just a little over 3% is Xander Shoffley, who is at 10-under. The highest of the 9-unders who has a chance to catch it is, uh, is Sung J.M. He's at about a 1.4% chance. And then even going down, Sam, kind of what we were talking about, the 8-unders, the highest 8-under currently is Patrick Rogers, who is about to tee off and uh, he is only at a 0.2% chance to win. So the analytics heavily favor that 9-under is definitely probably most likely the lowest that anyone will be. But, but Sam, you, you said someone who I thought was just crazy odds. I mean, Taylor Moore at 28-1? to 1? I mean, that's just unbelievable. I mean, he went bogey-free <laughs> yesterday. He showed how, how well he can play in the final round at the Valspar. I mean, if you could throw 10, 10 or 20 bucks, I mean, I, I've spent 10 bucks on things a lot stupider than Taylor Moore at 28-1 to 1 when he's only three back of a tournament. I think that's an absolute gorgeous bet right there. No doubt about it. That's what you get when a leaderboard is as bunched as this one with some big names up there. T-Dub, I think the winner comes from Maddie Fitz, Patrick Cantley, and Jordan Spieth just because of the way they have hit their irons this week. All three of those guys are gaining um, over a shot, and really Jordan Spieth and Maddie Fitz are gaining over a shot and a half on the field uh, with their iron strokes gained approach this week. And one more guy that, that I think to look out for today if he can get the putter a little bit hotter than it's been is Xander Shoffley. He's gained 2.39 shots per round on the field strokes gained uh, approach. And so he's been hitting the irons better than anybody in this golf tournament, but he's lost over half a shot per round on the greens. T-Dub, I think that if he can start rolling in some putts in this final round, we could see a low one from Xander Shoffley. He would be my guy that's a little bit down the list there at 10 under par tied for ninth uh, before this final round. I tend to agree with you, Sam. I mean, you look at it yesterday. He lost almost three shots on the greens. I mean, even Colt Nose was out there talking about how bad that the putter had been, gaining almost uh, 1.7 shots uh, approach yesterday. So, uh, But, yeah, he's gaining. He's definitely the overwhelming leader in the field when it comes to approach to greens. So, yeah, his irons are definitely the best. But he's going to have to get that putter figured out. I mean, didn't necessarily put horribly in the first uh, the first two days, but that third round was atrocious. So, yeah, he's definitely going to have to get it picked up a little bit to do on. But but out of those top three, I think you're probably right, Sam. You added the analytical value, and uh, Matty Fitz, Cantley, and Speed all add up to be about 66%. So that, that's two out of three times that you'd expect one of those guys to win. So the odds definitely say that. But you got guys down there like Scotty Scheffler lurking, and like I said, man, Taylor Moore down at 28-1. to 1. It's definitely not over by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think – if this tournament was played a hundred or a thousand times at that group of three, more times than not, one of those three guys would end up winning the tournament. No doubt about it. Uh, let's talk about John Rom real quick. Uh, John Rom is one under on the day, it means he's tied for seventeenth at nine under. Um, hasn't been John Rom's best week. Has kind of struggled around the greens a little bit, almost losing a full shot around the greens, maybe a little bit of fatigue. We heard some interesting comments we can get to in a second, but. Uh, T-Dub, what have you seen from John Rahm coming off his uh, win at Augusta? I mean, you you just you can expect him to have his best stuff, right? I mean, he just he went through so much last week to go out and win his second major championship. So, yeah, I think it was a little bit of a tall ass expecting him to come out and contend to win for this tournament. For him to be a 17th, and if he made one more birdie, he'd be in the top 10, which he talked about in his interview yesterday with uh, Manny Balionis, that that would have been an awesome accomplishment with everything that happened, and kind of like you expect for Rom, he's gaining about .6 shots off the tee, gaining 1.7 approach, so the ball striking is definitely there, but as you mentioned, losing almost a full shot around the green, so may also, whenever he does miss some greens, maybe he's not putting himself in the most advantageous spots, and then uh, 
losing shots on the field, punting as well. So kind of like you expected from Rom. I think anyone who, who really picked Rom, besides maybe in a couple of DraftKings lineups here or there, if you picked him in your one-and-done pool, you expect him to win your tournament. I think that's asking a lot coming off of, I mean, just a few days ago, grinding it out on Sunday, having to play, what, 20 nine holes or something like that to go out and win a major. It's a lot to come back in just a few days in an elevated event and expect to win. At least John Rom's there, right, Rory? Well, we'll get, we'll get to that <laughs> later on in the show. But, uh, but T-Dub, sticking to this final round, um, maybe tell the people a little bit about some of these guys that they might not know a whole lot about, like Mark Hubbard. Um, you know, we talked about Jimmy Walker earlier. Hayden Buckley is a guy that was I played college golf against because I played at University of Missouri, Kansas City. He played at the University of Missouri. He was a big-time college player, really solid ball striker. If he can get the putter hot today, I wouldn't you know, be shocked if he won the golf tournament. Cam Davis uh, is, a, is a guy from Australia that a lot of people forget about. Remember back a couple of years ago, people were asking the question, which Australian Cam is going to be better, Cam Smith or Cam Davis? Well, obviously it was Cam Smith. Um, but Cam Davis is sitting there at 10 under par tied for ninth in the golf tournament, Emiliano Grillo, um, maybe out of those kind of journeyman guys that we see up on top of the leaderboard, which names do you like considering the RBC has had some journeyman winners in the past? Yeah. If this wasn't an elevated event, I would think some of these guys would have a lot higher chance. I mean, someone like Mark Herbert, you look at him, and over his last, like, 12 events, he's only only two of them has he gained strokes game putting, and the majority of them he's losing at least half a shot and even sometimes uh, a full shot or even two shots. But this week gaining almost a full shot on the green, so something about these greens he really likes. He actually had a really good shot in there on 18 to make a very nice birdie, and he's gaining shots in every category across the board, so very solid from a kind of a journeyman and Mark Hubbard, and you look down, even someone like a Ches Reeve, who's been out there forever, but someone no one to really think of. He's uh, we talked a little bit about this earlier. He's third in the field in strokes gain approach, very similar to like a John Rom. His around the green has been horrible, but Reeve is putting really good as well. So uh, if he can just maybe not get in some of those tricky around the green situations that all Pete Dye courses really have, so it's not extremely surprising. Then he may be able to get around it. And then you know Cameron Davis as well. He's been a, a very streaky guy. He was up there around the. Uh, uh, what was it, the uh, Players' Championship, where he made a little bit of a move there, finished sixth at that tournament, but uh, did miss the cut. The Valero Texas Open, his last tournament, did, did not get in the Masters tournament. But at this course, Sam, he's played here twice, finished 25th and 3rd. So whatever it is about uh, the RBC Heritage Harbortown, uh, Cameron Davis really likes, and uh, he might be able to vault him way up. I just think there's a little bit too many guys to, uh, to be able to make a move for someone who's not a, uh, a, a traditional elite player. Dub, and then let's end this segment talking about the guy at the top. That is Maddie Fitz, Mr. Skill. Um, T-Dub, 11 starts in 2023, five top 20s, but no top fives and no wins for Maddie Fitz so far in 2023. And the glaring uh, thing that I see, at least, uh, you know, his strokes gain stats is he's not hitting the irons even close to as well as he was hitting them last year. I think that that has been uh, a big difference maker between his success last year and, and lack of success at the start of 2023. But you look at his iron game so far this week, and he's gaining over half, uh, over one and a half shots with the iron so far each round this week. Um, T-Dub, what have you seen watching Matty Fitz that looks a little different, especially uh, with the iron game? 
Well, one thing about Matty Fitz is that he has such a fast backswing. It's very similar to Nick Price back in the day where it just seems like it could be so hard to time it. And it looks like just the body and the arms can get out of sync sometimes. It's kind of what I what I saw during when he was having a stretch of it. He missed back-to-back cuts at the uh, the players in the Valspar Championship and a hit. His iron's absolutely horrible down there. So that's what it looked like to me. It's just crazy because he's been able to kind of rejuvenize his game a little bit, right? I mean, we made fun of him for talking about Bryson and his distance stuff, but I mean, he hits the ball exceptionally far when it comes to PJ Tour standards. Almost every tournament, he gains strokes when it comes to distance. So, when you look at him compared to last year, though, he's not hitting the ball as straight, and his chipping's not as good. His iron play's just a little bit worse, but really the accuracy and around the greens is what really dipped off. His distance and his putting are relatively about the same. His last, what is this? seven tournaments he's gained shots on the greens but the iron play has been streaky comparatively to what it has been his chipping was not very good at Augusta he still finished 10th down there so if he would have been able to chip a little bit would it would have been a little bit better and this week Sam gaining strokes in every category gaining more than a full shot on the greens and approach the green but his off the tee is what is a little bit lacking so uh, if he is able to maybe uh, find a few more fairways per se he's only hitting 64% of the fairways so far it's only 20 he's only missed 15 fairways out of the 42 fairways that he's hit so uh, needs to be able to get that number figured out if he wants to for sure win this tournament but uh, got a one shot lead even though it is over a big group of guys I do think he is sitting in the best position for sure no doubt. That is interesting about Matty Fitz off the tee. Normally, he drives it pretty straight. Uh, T-Dub, I'm going with Jordan Spieth uh, today at plus 550 uh, before this final round. I picked him before the tournament. I can't leave him now when he's solo third, only two back. It sounds like you're going with Cantlay, maybe? I'm going to go with Cantley. I do think that he is uh, poised. I do think he is a little bit motivated because everyone is calling him so slow, and I think he'll come out and say, hey, I could play slower if I shoot lo- the lower score than everyone because I save time by not having to hit more shots. So, I mean, that's the only way you can justify taking five hours to hit your ball, then go for it. So, yeah, I am leaning with Cantley. Matty Fitz looking good. I think that it, I don't think this is going to be similar to what we saw last week at, um, at a Masters. I don't think it's going to be a two- or one-horse race on the back nine. I think it's going to be a very, very jam-packed leaderboard. And hopefully guys like our man Taylor Moore can go out and make a move and if it's not Taylor Moore I'd love to see a guy like Jimmy Walker go out and make a move as well because just it's a great story I just think there's a little bit too much on his plate and too many good players up there uh, to make a move so yes if you told me who would pick a winner here I'll go with uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Molasses and Patrick Cantlay. <laughs> Mr. Molasses I like that okay T-Dub well after the break we need to get into some comments and I know it was a quiet week at the microphone last week everyone respecting Augusta National um, but John Rahm had some interesting comments. Obviously, Rory hasn't had any comments, but a lot of PGA Tour players have had comments about Rory McIlroy. We'll get into those after the break here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show right here on Oklahoma's Leader in Golf, the Sports Animal. And we're back here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show right here on the Sports Animal. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole with you until noon. By the way, the tee times have been moved up at the RBC the leaders will be going off at noon central time today. T-Dub, you know who won't be going off at any time today at the RBC? That is one Rory McIlroy, who withdrew from the RBC Heritage uh, after missing the cut at Augusta National. And Rory's penalty for withdrawing, by the way, the tour requires that you play all but one elevated event this year. Rory McIlroy skipped out on Kapalua, the Tournament of Champions earlier on this year, which was an elevated event. The penalty for not meeting the full requirement is the fact that you lose out on a percentage of the PIP money um, given out 
PIP bonuses given out by the tour, T-Dub, and that equals $3 million for Rory McIlroy. So Rory ends up missing out on $3 million. Oh, my gosh. How could you find Rory McIlroy, the activist for the PGA Tour, who has done so much for the PGA Tour? Well, T-Dub, let me look at it this way. Rory, back in February, said, quote, the best players should be playing in the elevated events because ultimately the PGA Tour needs to be built around the best players. Quote, that's what will maximize the value of the product. Now we're in the middle of April, T-Dub, and Rory McIlroy has already withdrawn twice through only six elevated events. And this is pissing off a whole lot of players. Vander Shoffley came out and said, rules are rules. So, I mean, for the most part, a lot of what he wanted is happening, T-Dub. And the irony, quote, is that he's not here. Xander Shoffley, pretty strong comments there. Uh, we also heard from Joel Damon. Joel Damon said, quote, I feel like Rory was leading the charge on the changes that have been made, and he helped make the rules. He knew the rules and knew what the rules were. So he knew that what, he knew what was coming. And then he said, quote, he also has so much money that he doesn't care about $3 million. T-Dub, this is my problem with what Rory McIlroy is doing, is we finally see the hypocrisy that I have been talking about for months. Rory McIlroy is doing not what's best for the PGA Tour or what's best for other PGA Tour players. Rory McIlroy is doing exactly what the live guys did that got ripped in the media. Rory McIlroy is doing what's best for Rory McIlroy. He gets guaranteed money. By the way, he owns a percentage in the TGL that the PGA Tour is partners with, so you can't necessarily find a guy considering he's business partners with the PGA Tour. He's just going to make that money back with the TGL business venture. So really, he's not getting docked any money whatsoever. It's a terrible look for Rory McIlroy, and it just highlights the hypocrisy that I've been talking about since all of this competition between Liv and the PGA Tour started. The thing I've been preaching is the fact that these players are going to do what's best for them. And Rory McIlroy is proving that by not being at the RBC Heritage this week and Listen, you could say, oh, it, it might be for personal reasons. I don't think that Xander Shoffley, T-Dub, is going to come out that strong against Rory McIlroy if he knew that Rory was dealing with something personally. Rory Mac I mean, Xander Shoffley came at Rory McIlroy and basically said, this guy's the guy that made the rules, and now all of a sudden people are mad that they're docking him $3 million. T-Dub, what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, just to put it into perspective, every single player is doing what is best for them. And rightfully so. I mean, I think Tiger's the only player who's maybe bigger than golf, or maybe even Phil, what he did was being a martyr for, for the future of golf. So, I mean, I don't think these other players are, are at that stage yet. So, no, every player's doing what is best for them. And, and you mentioned all those other guys who commented. I mean, John Ron came out and said, they asked him, they're like, well, why are you playing this week? Because you won the Masters last week. And he's like, well, you know, if, those, if kids come out and want, he, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but if he came out and said that if those kids come out and want to watch, they want to see the Masters champion. So he was going to show up and he made a commitment to do it. And he's going to. Then you have guys like, like Ricky Fowler come out and say, talking about the tour's lack of communication, saying, quote, I think that's a big thing that's been talked about for the last year to have more transparency and just good communication between players and the tour. And so, I mean, yes, there are so many players who feel the same way. And 
if it was any other person who decided to do this up at those elevated events, like just someone who hadn't been a spokesman, let's say it was Cameron Young or something like that, it's like, I'm not going to say anything. I don't really care because you, you haven't been this huge activist in talking about how bad the other side of the coin is and, and per, proposing these elevated events the way they are. I mean, take it next year, guys. I mean, we're going to no-cut, limited-field events. I mean, it's just crazy to think about that. And, and it's just, Sam, I mean, of all the people. You mean, I mean the same reason why they call live an exhibition no-cut? No cut, limited field events. And, and Sam, I just I love hearing your side of this because you have been so up in the middle of this, and you've been calling it from Rory McIlroy for the last almost year or so, right? That you just feel like that what he's saying, and and I feel this way. I feel like a lot of stuff that he said hasn't been really fully genuine, and some of the things he's saying are just really to to get him some more money. But uh, I mean, at least Sam, after this point, it seems like that he doesn't really care about money. I mean, giving up three million dollars that's a that's a large sum. My question is. Where's this $3 million go now? I mean, I think that's one thing Ricky's talking about with this communication thing. Probably back into the TGL business venture, T-Dub. I don't know. And I would love to see if the PGA Tour actually did uh, fine him $3 million. I don't think uh, that they would do that, considering the fact that, like I heard on the Golf Channel yesterday, and I sometimes, T-Dub, I rage watch the Golf Channel. I'll say that. But I, I was listening to the Golf Channel, and they said, this proves that the PGA Tour is stronger than it's ever been. They're finding Rory McIlroy. Well, listen to me. T-Dub, number one is the PGA Tour has lost all leverage. If Rory McIlroy left and the PGA Tour pissed him off, he's gone. And the PGA Tour is absolutely done. The, the PGA Tour is weaker than it's ever been because the players have all the leverage. Rory McIlroy literally just skipped out on an elevated event and said, I'll pay $3 million. He literally helped write the rules, but he basically said, I'll pay $3 million so I don't have to be there, T-Dub. How is that stronger than it's ever been? Uh, T-Dub, I just see the hypocrisy in all of this situation. And, you know, from the beginning when Jay Monahan couldn't agree to a money figure, figure with the live uh, guys back in the day, like two years ago when all live wanted to do was control a fall series and then, all of a sudden ends up not only losing leverage and now the players have all the leverage, they're probably going to lose their nonprofit status. Jay Monahan has done nothing but run the PGA tour into the ground. Now you have your biggest name in these elevated events paying $3 million. So he doesn't have to be there. T-Dub. We are watching the PGA tour go down in flames and it's not because I want it to T-Dub. I'm just saying what I see and I see the hypocrisy in all of this situation. Have they made some poor decisions in the past? Yes. Are they going down in flames? I, I think that may be a little bit of a stretch because you, look, look at this, right? Look look at the purse that you had last year in the RBC Heritage Open. Jordan Spieth, when he won last year, made $1.4 million. The winner this week gets $3.6 million and third place. But Sam, who is that because of, T-Dub? Well, it is because of the players, but at the same time, it's people will say because this, right? Well, yes, it, it is because of Liv, yes, because they finally made the decision to make it. That's one of the reasons why that I've been such a big fan of Liv, because these changes did occur. But I, I just think that these players are, are so good now, and even the players the PJ Tour has been able to keep, I think that even if it is a player-run tour, which is what it should be, and one of the reasons I've been saying this for years is that now that they have the power, they can do things like this. And like I said, if it had been anyone besides Rory McIlroy to come out and just skip an extra elevated event, I wouldn't have a problem with it because – 
that, that's your that's your choice is player freedom, like we say with Liv. Guys going to Liv, you want to play as much as you want. That's totally fine, but don't come out and be the spokesman saying we need these events, you need to play all the elevated events, and then not show up, especially. It's not like that he won the Masters last week like John Rahm did, or he didn't grind it out like Brooks Kepka. I mean, he missed the cut. He missed the cut by two shots. It's like he had all the extra time to practice and get it figured out. There's no reason that he shouldn't have been playing this week. I mean, and that's one of the reasons, like, uh, you know, Shoffley, Ricky, Rahm has said the things that they do is that, well, maybe not Ricky because he didn't play last week, but, like, Rahm, I mean, like, they're upset about it. Like, they didn't want to come here and play this week, but they made a commitment to it. There's a reason that those guys didn't play the week after the Masters usually, but now because it's an elevated event, they did, and they think that, oh, Roy's just going to, I mean, yes, it is $3 million on the surface of it, but a lot of people probably feel like this is just a slap on the wrist, right, that uh, he's just speaking out, uh, out one side of his mouth and not really holding true to his word, right? Well, that's what Joel Damon basically said. He said, I mean, so what? You find him $3 million. He doesn't care about money anyways. But, T-Dub, let me explain what I mean about the downfall of the PGA Tour a little bit more. I mean, you even have guys like Xander Shoffley coming out saying, what are we doing here? Rory made these rules, and now all of a sudden I'm stuck playing the RBC Heritage, and Rory's not even here. That's upsetting the players. And then the PGA Tour with these elevated events are upsetting sponsors. Some sponsors... It's been rumored that are upset that they are elevated, having to pay bigger purses. And even it's been rumored to me that certain sponsors have denied paying some of the purses, that the PGA Tour are actually paying some of these elevated purses out of their own pocket. And then on the flip side of that, you have non-elevated sponsors that are upset at the PGA Tour, T-Dub, because they aren't elevated, like Jack Nicklaus for the Honda Classic and all that stuff. So you're upsetting sponsors and now players like Joel Damon and Xander Shoffley and John Rahm. I'm sure every player out there, if you're a big name, is upset because Rory McIlroy gets to just skip out on the RBC when he's the one that made the rules. And he knows and those players know that he is really in conjunction with everything, all the changes that the PGA Tour has made. That is what I'm saying about the PGA Tour being weaker than it's ever been. And the purses you mentioned to me, it's all because of Lib coming along, finally giving the monopoly some competition. Well, I mean, that, that is 100% right there. And this, the, the sponsorship conflicts are going to be something that's going to have to be resolved at some point because it's two sides of the coin, right? Everyone just thought on the surface of it, oh, well, these non-elevated events are going to be mad and these, uh, the elevated events will be happy. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. They didn't sign up to pay $20, $25 million purses. So that, that's something that we'll have to do it. But one thing the PJ Tour does have going for them is that their P, their TV contract is signed through, I believe, like 2030 or something like that. Maybe off by a year or two. But, but they've got a long way for that, and that's where a, a very, very vast amount – of the PJ Tour revenue comes in. But at the end of the day, Sam, you, you mentioned it earlier, that I think they're going to, within the next decade or so, that they're going to have to lose their uh, their uh, non-profit designation and be private ownership. I mean, I think Tiger and, and Rory... you know who's going to be the heroes that come in? Yeah, you just said it. Tiger and Rory are going to come in with their TGL uh, and come in and, and be that business partner with the PGA Tour to save the day, right? When, and Even though they're the ones paying these top players to stick around right now. I just see a world, Sam, to where it could actually be better for the tour in in the long run to not have to deal with all this BS and having a Jay Monahan type of figure running it. I mean, I feel like the tour would be – would it necessarily maybe every decision be good if Tiger and Rory are making them? I mean, probably not, but I feel like there would have been maybe some better steps made along this route. I mean, I could be completely wrong on that. It could lead to the absolute downfall and maybe going up in flames, as you were kind of alluding to earlier. But, but no, I think as long as Tiger is behind the PJ Tour, I think it's going to be fine. 
um, I, as we saw with Phil, he went to live, and and that was a, a bad thing at first, but it's actually ended up being a great thing for the game of golf going on. So, yeah, I think that's going to be the biggest thing that's going to change golf in the next decade or two is the PGA Tour. In my opinion, I don't I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when the nonprofit designation is lost and they go to private ownership of, like you mentioned, Tiger and Rory and maybe some few other people uh, running the show. But it will be I, – and I, I think it would be mostly Tiger out of all those guys. My head, when Rory McIlroy withdrew from this RBC T-Dub, went right back to what John Rahm said last year. Remember when he was doing that press conference and they said you got to be at all all of them but one of the 12 elevated events, not including the players or the four majors T-Dub or the playoff events? And John Rahm goes, wait, we do? <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden, John Rahm stuck playing the RBC and Rory's not even there. It just made me giggle, right? A hundred percent, and for someone like Rom and, and even Rory, to this sense, it matters more because they play on the DP World Tour as well. I mean, Rom plays how many ever events over there? Rory does as well. So uh, I mean, but like Rory can't use that as an excuse now, saying, "Oh well, I play on the DP World Tour. I need extra time off." Or where guys like Rom and there's a lot of other guys here in these elevated events who play on the DP World well, Tour. Let's well. talk about that for a second. The DP World Tour signed this alliance, and then all of a sudden they win the lawsuit against Liv basically saying that they are allowed to ban these guys. And a week later, Keith Pelly comes out and says, not so fast. I mean, we might not ban these live players, uh, you know, it, it, because it's not good for our tour. All of a sudden, when they when the DP World Tour and Keith Pelly signed the alliance with Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour, all of a sudden they became a feeder tour to the PGA Tour. And the, the European Tour is, you know, it, it, it's weaker than it's ever been, right? You have the PGA Tour, then live, then really i mean the corn fairy tour and the dp world tour are pretty similar right now and the, and keith pelly's saying why would i ban these live players when i can make my field a little bit stronger right well and I, I don't see a reason why the dp world tour would want to be the feeder tour to the pj tour i mean are they ever going to be as high as the pj tour or probably even live in, in this sense probably not at this point, but yes, if they can get a little bit stronger fields, and they have a lot of exceptionally great tournaments. I mean, the BMW Championship at Wentworth, the Irish Open. I mean, all the tournaments they have in Dubai, Qatar. I mean, those are all Abu Dhabi. Those are great tournaments. I mean, they they draw great fields, and that's that's really what the DP World Tour has done. I mean, maybe if you ask thirty years ago, maybe so. But but the global game of golf has transcended so much, and they play just even more in Europe now. They go all all around the world. They don't play in the United States and in North America, but they play. They, they are a very global tour. DP World Tour is, is a great uh, word for it because they are not the European tour anymore. So I do not see why they would have wanted to do that, and they probably have some regrets by doing that, especially since, as you kind of mentioned, the PGA Tour, while they are giving out more money, isn't necessarily as strong as it looked upwards of five years ago. So there's so many moving parts. Well, and the problem with the PGA Tour giving out more money is the Europeans that, you know, in the past would have played on the DP World Tour like Tommy Fleetwood or Justin Rose or some of those other guys. And then obviously the a bunch of Europeans that are on live, they're losing out on not only the live Europeans that went to the PGA Tour, but they're losing out on the Tommy Fleetwoods of the world oh, and, because of the money. The and money's yeah, bigger on the PGA Tour. And, and the amount of elevated events that they have to play if they want to try to get some pit money. So it's like, well, if you have to play 18 times on the PGA Tour, maybe you wouldn't play that much, and maybe you play less over in Europe than you do now. So, yeah, there are a lot of consequences to these decisions that have been made for the DP World Tour, and I think that whenever they decide to do this alliance, which was back before Live, what was it, probably four or five years ago now that that was done, there's been a lot of things changed since then, and uh, maybe uh, while th there are still some perks of it because the uh, DP World Tour guys, was it, five or ten cards they give out for the PGA Tour, so that is something that, that is good, but at the same time, there's probably some things that have happened where Keith Pelley and some of those other guys back and say, hey, we, we didn't necessarily sign up for this to be a part of the equation. 
It's definitely really interesting, P-Dub. If you have any thoughts on that whole situation, text 405-900-9957. That is the Trade Pros Heat and Air Text Nation line. One more segment here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show. Sam Humphreys, Taylor Williams, Preston Poole with you until noon on Oklahoma's leader in golf, the sports animal. And we're back for one final segment here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show. On the sports animal, Sam Humphreys and Taylor Williams with you. Um, T-Dub, one guy that I wanted to mention that we really didn't have time for when we were talking about the RBC Heritage was Victor Hovland. Javi has had a crazy week this week. Opened with the opening round 64 uh, at the RBC and then shot one under 70 in the second round. And then all of a sudden, T-Dub shot 78, seven over par in uh, his third round yesterday had a triple on 15 at no birdies uh, in that round. He's not putting any good this week. And, and really T-Dub, it, it was, uh, it was the putting that really cost him in that, in that third round lost 5.65 shots on the greens. Uh, why has Javi kind of been thrusting himself into contention and then playing inconsistent golf on weekends? What, what are your thoughts on that? It is a good question. It really is. I mean, we, we've talked about, for example, we talked about Tommy Fleetwood earlier finally being able to win on the PGA Tour. We keep talking about Hovland have not won in the continental United States yet. So, I mean, he's definitely something there. there there's no doubt about that. And then you, you look at, as you mentioned, Sam, yesterday, I don't know if I've ever seen a round where someone's lost more than five and a half shots on the greens. I mean, that's just absolutely horrible. I mean, a birdie-free 78. I mean, that's hard to have very much fun whenever – that, that tends to be the case. You mentioned the triple on 15, just not very good. And, and from what I've seen, they kept talking about this on the broadcast as well. Keeps missing putts left, which is, you know, a few things could be there. You could just be lining up left constantly. You know, you could be misreading them. Uh, a couple of times they mentioned, looked like that he hit the putt right where he wanted to. May just be uh, misreading it. So I've I've been in that situation before sometimes where you, you just kind of start aiming a little too far right. You know, on right to left putts, you may see a little too much break. Left to right putts, you may not see enough break. It may be the opposite for Hovland in this case. Maybe just something with his eye line. Maybe his shoulders could be open as well. Um, and, and we, I remember we talked about this before where uh, at the Ryder Cup when it was at Whistling Straits, he was cutting across his putts. Where he was cutting and he was going outside to in, which creates a left-to-right spin on it, which is not what you want at all. It's a very, very bad for putting. And he may be doing a little bit of that as well, except instead of just cutting across it, the face is just a little bit more shut. So, yeah, he, he's definitely got some things to work out. And the biggest thing, I think, Sam, besides the putter, and we normally talk about the, the chipping and short game, but but there's something mental when it comes to when he gets up in the lead uh, around the continental United States because he has some good finish, finished seventh at the Masters, but was up there more contention, finished third at the Players, tenth at the Arnold Palmer. So you got to sort of like Tommy Fleetwood, even to a higher extent, you got to think that it's going to come at some point. But the question is a matter of when, and uh, he just has too much talent to not get it done, though, Sam. At some point, no, there's no doubt, and he's very consistent in making cuts like he hasn't missed a cut since the genesis scottish open which was before the open championship last year um but he really hasn't contended to win many golf tournaments he did, did win the hero world challenge um but that was a limited field uh no cut event uh obviously you know contended at augusta last week but but kind of faltered at, on sunday or in the final round there um, it, it, it is interesting considering how great of a ball striker he is that he doesn't vault himself up there. Um, but I think that he's young and he'll get it figured out. And I do think that he'll have certain weeks where he will 
win in the continental United States. It's coming. We just have to wait on it. And he can't be, you know, throwing 78s out there. That's not going to help you. Um, but that's very kind of uncharacteristic of Victor Hovland. I give him maybe a B minus so far in 2023 T-Dub about five minutes left here in the show. I do want to do some report cards of, of guys at the top, especially on the data golf rankings. John Rahm to me is obviously an A plus and won six times around the world uh, since the tour championship. Scotty Scheffler has won a couple times. I think those are my only two A pluses T-Dub. Would you put anyone else in the A plus category uh, considering we have just finished our first major of 2023? A plus, probably not. I think an A contender is Max Homa, um, just because of how well he played over in California. Won won at Tory, the Farmers Insurance Open, finished second to Rom at the Genesis, and then even after that, finished sixth at the Players Championship, fourteenth at the Arnold Palmer. So it was really good. But the biggest thing you got with Max Homa is the majors right now, and he did finish forty third at Augusta. Does still does not have a top ten in a major championship yet, which is absolutely crazy because uh, about six months ago, Sam, what we were saying Max Homa is probably the most underrated actual golfer, right? Everyone just thought he's this big Twitter guy, but he's actually a great game, and I think it's kind of flipped right. Everyone thinks that he's just an absolute world beater. People are saying that he was going to be the third best player in the world a couple months ago, and I just can't give that crown to someone who, is, who doesn't have a top ten in a major yet. I think it's just kind of almost ludicrous even to say that to a certain extent. So, uh, definitely not an A-plus for Homa, but I think he's definitely in that a category for sure. I wouldn't even go A minus with Homa. I'd still go with A just because of how well he started the season. The other guy that I would have in that A category is Patrick Cantlay to me. T Dub only has one missed cut, did miss the cut at the Phoenix Open, but other than that, had the win at the BMW. Uh, that was obviously last year, right before the P- uh, right before the Tour Championship. But so far in 2023, as a tied for second, uh, you know he has a solo third, tied for ninth, tied for fourth. Um, and like I said, only one missed cut, and he's been the most consistent iron player on the PGA Tour throughout 2023 of the guys not named Scotty Scheffler or John Rahm. Um, what are your thoughts on him? Do you agree that he's in that A category? I would think so. It is maybe a little disheartening that he hasn't gotten a win yet this year. His last win was at the BMW Championship last year in August, so I mean, he's not too far removed per se, But and he has been playing really well. He was in the second-to-last group of the Masters and a finishing 14th, but then finished third at the Genesis, fourth at Arnold Palmer, made the group play at the match play as well. Really his worst finish since his miscut at the, finish, at the uh, Phoenix Open was 19th at the Players, the biggest event of the year. So, so yeah, I, I think that he probably does belong in that A category Um, over the course of really going all the way back to, once again, what's the same with a lot of guys, going to the, the FedEx St. Jude in August. I'm not sure why that was a week for people to hit it bad. But that was really the last time besides when he missed to get the Phoenix Open where he's lost strokes gained approach. So his swing is definitely dialed in. His off the tee game is dialed in as well. But uh, the short game and the putting has been a little bit streaky. So if, as long as he can get that worked out, He'll be good. And just hurry up and hit the dang ball, man. I mean, I'm just getting tired of watching him stand over. <laughs> Those two guys in that A category, I feel like, might be some pretty good names to look at at LA Country Club coming up later this year. A guy that I would put in the B-plus category, and I know I'm holding him to a high standard. He hasn't missed a cut since last year's Masters, but that's Xander Shoffley. And the reason why I can't put him in the A category, T-Dub, is because in 2023, he doesn't have a win yet, but I feel like he's that talented to where every single time Xander tees it up, he should be wanting to win the golf tournament and should have the think of himself as, as having the talent to where he should be disappointed if he doesn't finish in the top five. Now, he does, uh, you know, he had the tied for fifth 
uh, at the match play, which is it's an interesting tied for fifth. But he did play some good golf, barely lost to Rory that week, finished tied for 10th last week at the Masters, finished tied for 10th at the elevated event in Phoenix, finished tied for third at the American Express, solo fourth at the Hero. Um, but it's just been kind of interesting watching Patrick Cantlay because you can't necessarily put your finger on one little thing that he does. It just seems like that he's a little like one step away from being on that elite tier on the PGA Tour. He's very, very consistent, plays very, very good golf, but I wouldn't consider it great golf. Well, yeah, you, you look at you look at Shoffley, right, and and really going all the way back his last few events, he gained strokes in every category at the Masters, but. The three events before that, he gained, he lost a decent amount of shots off of the tee, and then the two events before that, he lost a decent amount of strokes around the greens, but yet he's still having some very high finishes in there as well. So just seems like with the exception of maybe one or two weeks, uh, he hasn't been able to put every single aspect of his game together. It looks like he may be able to start doing that. Like you said, he did that at the Masters last week, but this week the putter has really, uh, really been holding him back. But he has gone out and actually birdied the first hole as well, so he's got a, a par five coming up. So maybe he's going out and make a little bit of move, just like you were saying earlier, Sam. If he uh, if he can just get that putter rolling with how well he's hitting his irons, he's going to move up the leaderboard, and he's already doing that on the first hole. D-Dub, we're out of time. We should probably do some report cards on the podcast later on this week. We'll, we'll make it a point to do that. Uh, T-Dub, thank you. Preston Poole, thank you. Stay tuned here on the Sports Animal today. We are airing the Lakers-Grizzlies game uh, at 2 p.m. Central Time today. So stay tuned here on the Sports Animal. We will be airing the Lakers and the Grizzlies. This has been Sam Humphreys here on the 73rd Hole Radio Show. Definitely make sure to follow us on social media, and subscribe to the 73rd Hole Podcast anywhere you get your podcast and the sportsanimal.com. Until next week, guys, thank you. This is Sam Humphreys on Uncle